Amen. Thank you, ladies. Well, this morning, I take it that everything's uh, working in the sound room, yes? Thumbs up? No thumbs up yet. Thumbs up, Adam? Yes, all right. So, uh, this morning as we give our attention to the study of the Word of God, uh, and I hope you guys can all hear me all right, uh, I want to invite you um, to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7. We pick up in verse 34, excuse me, verse 24, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter verse 37. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. I've entitled today's message, To the Jew First. To the Jew First. That is the priority in the gospel message. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And I suspect that uh, many have the understanding uh, of the gospel that God sent His Son as the Messiah for the nation of Israel. And the only reason that the gospel came to Gentiles was because the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. And while that certainly was all a part of God's sovereign plan, He's not sitting in heaven uh, twiddling His thumbs or taking an educated guess as to what He thinks people will do. He is orchestrating His plan for redemptive history from the very beginning all the way to completion. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the very foundation of the world. You know what that means? That means even before creation, God knew that we would fall. And He had planned how He was going to rescue us from our justly deserved condemnation and His wrath. But Gentile salvation has always been a part of God's plan. Going all the way back to in the revealed Word of God to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, you can keep your finger in Mark 7 if you want. Uh, and if you want to walk through this quick Old Testament tour with me, I'll just show you this very briefly. In Genesis chapter 12, the Scripture tells us, starting in verse 1, "...the Lord said to Abram, who later gets named Abraham, "...go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation." I will bless you, I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the ones, uh, excuse me, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, here's the key, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What God has given to Abraham, or to Abram at this point, uh, in this initial call to enter into the promised land, This initial expression of the promise that God makes to Abraham. God says to Abraham, if you obey me and leave your land and come to the land that I am going to show you, my promise to you is that I will make you a great nation. And beyond that, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You are the channel through which I will bless all nations. 
Now, I could walk through the rest of this, the developed statements with regard to the Abrahamic covenant uh, through Genesis 12, the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. I, I, could, I could walk you through the reiteration of essentially the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, but for the sake of time, let me just uh, articulate what is obvious even from the beginning here in Genesis chapter 12. God's promise to Abraham was not simply that his descendants would be blessed, but that he would be a channel through which all the nations would be blessed. And there has always, because of Abraham though, been a focus on his descendants, on him and his descendants as the primary channel through which that blessing comes. That is reiterated in the blessing that God gives and the reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac and then to Jacob as opposed to Esau. So that Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, uh, that's where Israel as a nation gets its name when God renames uh, Jacob Israel, There has been a focus on that nation, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of of Israel, and the twelve tribes, as God's people, God's chosen son, so to speak. And when you get into the Exodus and uh, walk all the way through the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings right up to the edge of the promised land, uh, God makes it very clear to the nation of Israel that He has saved them, delivered them from bondage in Egypt, and He is taking them into the promised land, not because they're a great people, not because they're more numerous than all the other nations. The singular reason that He is delivering them from bondage in Egypt and making them a great nation is because He made a promise to Abraham and to their forefathers, the patriarchs. God has selected Abraham and his descendants, and then out of his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, Israel, and that nation to be the channel through which he is going to bless all the nations. Now, I think that it is essential that we understand from the beginning that that has always been God's plan, and that's what He has articulated from the very beginning. Israel is God's chosen people. They are the nation that He has promised to elevate above all other nations. When Jesus shows up as the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Anointed One, the King of Israel, the Son of David the one with the rightful claim to David's throne. It is a throne that God has ordained to be the king of over over all kings, the Lord over all lords, the, the preeminent national status over all the nations of the world. That's a promise that's articulated repeatedly through the Davidic covenant, through the Psalms, Psalm 2 in particular. This is, listen, this is what the nation of Israel is expecting when their Messiah shows up. And God gave the 
Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all the, the, the dietary laws and regulations and all of those stipulations with regard to the sacrificial system, etc. He established all of that with the nation of Israel so that they could be a corporate witness to the world. Okay, A corporate identity, a national identity by which they can demonstrate the one true God. The God who is the first and the last. And when we think of first and the last, we think of the, the, from the start to the very end. But when God identifies Himself as the first and the last, He means He is the first God and the last God of all gods, meaning the only God. That's an emphatic way to say the one and the only. First and last isn't, isn't talking about as you work through time. It's talking about I am the first and the last, meaning the only. The only God. So when the God of Israel acts on behalf of that nation in contrast to all of the other nations, it makes it clear that the God of Israel is the living God. He is the powerful God, the almighty God, the only God, the creator God. That becomes a national testimony to the world. And even when Solomon dedicates the temple, you'll remember that when they, when they put together the whole of the temple landscape, the, the whole of the, of the upper, uh, not the floor, but the upper level of the temple, okay, there was a division with the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then the, the inner part where the sacrifices are made, right? Well, the closest that a Gentile could get to God was the court of the Gentiles. The closest that a woman could get was the court of the women. And the closest the people could get, uh, as far as the men goes, that were bringing the sacrifices was right up there to the altar. And the closest the priest could get was to the holy place. And the closest the high priest could get once a year on the Day of Atonement was the holy of holies behind the veil. Why? Because The once-for-all sacrifice for sins has not been paid. So access to God is not available. Even the the shedding of the blood of the bulls and the goats, the animals, the shedding of the lamb's blood, etc., doesn't take away sin. All it does is cover it. And those offerings keep getting made over and over and over again. And if you want to recognize the God of Israel as the one true God because of the national witness of Israel, you have to come to Israel. You have to come to the temple. And as close as you can get is the court of the Gentiles. Right? There's a separation between Israel and all the other nations. That's as close as you can get. But you can still uh, get an offering presented on your behalf. And Solomon even prays when people from other nations come and they want to recognize you and offer up sacrifices, hear their prayers and receive their sacrifices, etc. That's the intention that God had for the nation of Israel, that they would be a corporate witness to the world in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant. And the promise that God gave to Israel through David and the Davidic covenant is there will be a a descendant of David who will be my son in a special way and his kingdom shall be everlasting and he'll rule over all the nations. By the time you get to the first century and you get to the the context of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, By the time you get there, Israel has gone through the whole of their history from 1440 B.C. 
to about 30, well, about 27, 26, 27 A.D. when Jesus' earthly ministry begins, when John the Baptist starts preaching. Through that whole round numbers, 1,500 year existence of them as a nation, they've gone through a lot. They've been uh, uh, taken into captivity and come back from captivity, been reestablished as a nation, but now they are under Gentile authority. And as the Roman rule continues there in the land of Israel, that messianic hope for Israel begins to really increase. And they're really looking for the Messiah to come and the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises that God has made. When are you going to send your your Messiah, your anointed one, the son of David, to to deliver us from bondage, to deliver us from Gentile oppression and rule and make us that independent nation, that sovereign nation over all other nations that you have promised? When are you going to do that? And that's what they're all looking for. And they are looking for God to save them. And by the time you get to the first century and the days of Jesus and His arrival, the Jews have begun to see themselves not as the instrument that God is using as a witness to the world to point everyone to the one true God. They see themselves as God's people. They see themselves as deserving of God's deliverance. They see themselves as right in the sight of God and to a degree Him owing them the fulfillment of all those promises that He has made to them because they have reconstructed the temple. They are offering up the sacrifices and offerings. They are doing what they're supposed to do. They are keeping the law. In fact, they're keeping the traditions of the fathers, which is not just what the Bible says. It's all those additional stipulations way beyond it. When God shows up, He's going he's to go, yes, you're my people, good job. And the only people that are going to be in trouble that are part of Israel are the tax collectors and sinners and, and the, those that are unfaithful. But for the rest of us, scribes, Pharisees, good, faithful Jews, etc., He's going to come and He's going to prove us and receive us and establish us as sovereign over all. That's what, that's what the messianic expectation is of Israel in that day. And He is going to crush the Gentiles beneath our feet. He's going to subjugate all nations beneath us because we are descendants of Abraham. We are the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. You see the spiritual pride? Now you understand why when John the Baptist began to preach, now you understand why he proclaimed so boldly and so persistently. Listen, don't... Don't think that you can say Abraham is my father and that you're therefore part of God's kingdom. I tell you the truth. God can raise up from these stones sons of Abraham. Your physical heritage accounts for zero if you don't recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's why he did a baptism of repentance. That's why he he was preparing the people for the arrival of the Lord. The Messiah is the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, you know what? If you want to be ready for God showing up, you better recognize you're a sinner. I don't care if you're a Jew or not. You better recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior because when God shows up, His expectation is perfection and none of us measure up to it, right? Would you say that's still true today? Nobody's perfect. Everybody's due God's wrath. If God showed up right here, right now, today... The only basis upon which I could stand up right before Him is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on my behalf. 
I'm as worthy of eternal condemnation as anybody else that's ever been born, with one exception, Jesus himself, who is God incarnate. That's the message that John proclaimed to the nation of Israel. Now you know why it was not well received. Because he was telling Jews, they're not the people of God unless they repent. Being a descendant, a physical descendant of Israel, or excuse me, of Abraham, does not gain you access to God or obligate God to grant you a place in his kingdom. In order to have a place in his kingdom, you're going to have to recognize yourself as a sinner in need of a savior. You're going to need to come forward in repentance. And then, yes, you receive your inheritance as one of my chosen people, as a member of the household of Israel. This is what was so offensive to the scribes and Pharisees who believed that they were keeping God's law and therefore they didn't need to do anything to get right with God. They were already right with God. They were Jews and keeping the law and when God shows up, He's just going to give them the the, the two thumbs up and let's go get them, guys. You're my people. Now I want you to see also though, keeping your finger in Mark 7, I want you to take a look at Isaiah now, we all know Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant passage. Isaiah 49, though, sets the context for it. And I want to show you just, a, a, I mean, we can walk through all of this, but I just have a few verses I want to direct your attention to to help you to see what God's plan has always been. We look in Isaiah 53 and see that God's plan always was that the servant would come and... Uh, suffer in our place that that the servant of the lord would prosper that he would be high and lifted up greatly exalted but that he would be despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief etc that he would bear our griefs and and carry our sorrows that we would esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, etc. We see in Isaiah 53 that the cross was always part of God's plan. What I want you to see in Isaiah 49 is that Gentile salvation was also always part of God's plan. It did not take God by surprise that his own people would reject him. Isaiah 49, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention. This is uh, Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention. The Lord called me from the womb. From the womb of my mother, He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me. And He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, Jacob reference to Israel, so that Israel, all of his descendants, might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, listen to this, it is too small a thing. Too insignificant a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small a thing that I send you as my servant to die and save just 
the elect of Israel. That's way too small. I will also make you a light of the nations or a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach to what? The end of the earth. It's way too small a thing for me to send you as the, as, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the servant of the Lord to just provide for the chosen of Israel. That's way too small a thing. I'm going to use you, or I'm going to send you also and gift you not just the elect of Israel, but of the nations as well. God has always intended in His plan for redemptive history. Now, like I said from the beginning, Ephesians 1, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth. And at least for me, I'm a Gentile. And I assume most of you are Gentiles as well. And you know what? If you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. That's, that's before Adam and Eve were formed out of the dust of the ground and out of the side of the flesh of Adam. Before our greatest grandparents. And we all have Adam and Eve as our greatest grandparents. And we all have Noah and his family members as our greatest grandparents. We're all from the same lines. Okay? And before any of that transpired, God chose to save me as an individual. Because the Son coming and offering Himself up as a sacrifice for sin just for the elect of Israel was way too small of a thing for the Father to give the Son as a gift and a reward for uh, His perfect obedience. We could go to John 17 right now and I could show you that this has always been that, that, that our salvation. You, you realize you were saved because God loves not just you, but because God loves His Son. You were saved not just because Christ loves you, but because Christ loves the Father. Christ came and offered Himself up as a sacrifice to pay for our sins because of His love for the Father and His love for us. He laid His life down for us because He loved the Father in order to give us provide for us salvation, forgive full forgiveness of sins so that the Father could pardon us and the Father sent the Son to die for us so that He could gift the Son with us, a redeemed people. We are a loved gift from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. You want to talk about an amazing God who really does love us? You want to talk about an amazing thought to consider who you really are in Christ? You want, to get a, you, you want to get a proper view of just how small you are and how big our God is? Okay, that begins to dabble into the area of just how big God is and what salvation is really all about. Salvation has never been just about uh, the salvation of Israel and then they blew it, so they're written off and now we turn to the Gentiles. One last passage that I, I want to take you to just to illustrate this is Romans chapter 11. If you're familiar with the book of, of Romans, it's the most detailed uh, explanation and description of the gospel message in the whole of the pages of Scripture. Okay? It is a theology of salvation, so to speak. And you go through the first eight chapters and the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power. Or I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first 
and then also to the Gentile. And then he lays out that uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we are saved, we are justified by faith in Christ and what He did for us, not by works. And that we stand in a no condemnation status and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ because we're His children. And then in chapters 9-11, through 11, he, ad- he addresses that big question about, well, what about Israel? Because when I read my Old Testament, it sure looks like God says they were His chosen people and nothing could separate them from His love. Well, how do I know that we can't blow it like they, they blew it? Romans 11, verse 25. Paul, in concluding his discussion on this whole subject, says this, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery with regard to his treatment of Israel, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I don't want you to think of yourself as better than the Jews, because they blew it and you didn't. That's why you got it. I I want you... Uh, to be informed of this so that you won't be wise in your own estimation. And that is, I want you to be informed that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This has always been God's plan. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Uh, Jacob, another way to refer to the nation of Israel. This is my covenant or my promise with them when I take away their sins. Their deliverance is still pending as a nation. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, or if you prefer, God's selection or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Again, not because they're anybody special, just like not because we're anybody special. But because of the promises that God made to the patriarchs, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That'd be a good, really good uh, technical term to put on the quiz for after service this morning. What does irrevocable mean? Irrevocable, irrevocable means that you can't take it away. I make this promise, it's like a guarantee, and it can't be revoked. It is not able to be canceled, period. The gifts and the calling of God can't be canceled. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be now shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. When are we going to see uh, Him showing mercy to the nation of Israel as a people again? When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Listen, if you just take this literally, you will see why there is still a plan in the future for Israel. That is the time, it's called the time of the tribulation, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time when God returns to his focus of attention back to the nation of Israel. Maybe I will do Daniel next. But in in any case, the point is that God's plan for salvation has always included Gentile salvation. So when the Messiah shows up, he shows up and he preaches and he ministers and he does miracles for the Jews. When he sends the disciples out the first time, two by two, he says, go only to the house of Israel. 
Only go through the the towns and the places where there are Jews. Stay basically in Israel. Why? Because the gospel, the good news, the invitation to be a part of the kingdom is for the Jew first. Because they have been given an order of priority nationally. Because that's what God's plan is. Not because they're better than anybody else, but because God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have the order of priority. And that the Messiah who came would be the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ of Israel, the Son of David. The one with a rightful claim to the throne of Israel that would also incorporate the subjugation of all nations beneath His authority. That's why He's King of all kings, Lord of all lords. King of kings and Lord of lords is a title that means King of over all kings, Lord, Master, over all lords, all authority, absolute authority. Now, as we give our attention to Mark chapter 7, we come to the time in Jesus' ministry where you've seen up to now His popularity has reached a fever pitch, right? It really has a, a lot of people that are either very antagonistic toward him and the religious leaders already seeking to put him to death because he has so grossly offended them by not paying attention to the traditions of the elders, by calling Pharisees and scribes to repentance. Are you kidding me? And by calling all to repentance and by addressing all of those who are superficial in their interest and attachment to him, who want to just go ahead and make him king. Because why not? I mean, listen, if you're sick or somebody in your household or a friend is sick, what do you do? You take him to Jesus and he gets cured. Amazing stuff happens. And for that matter, we're out in the wilderness and he multiplies loaves and fish. One kid brought his lunch and we all ate until we were just stuffed. Wouldn't you like to have... I mean, let me ask you a question. If the next presidential election had a guy or a gal on the ticket that could cure cancer or any other disease or sickness you had and could just provide free food, would you vote for him? Would you say, hey, this this ought to be our next president? And and, and you know what? You know the the one thing the Jews wanted? You want to know what the one thing all these people wanted? They wanted to elevate Jesus to a position of authority because that's the kind of authority that really is of great help to them, great benefit to them, great service to them. It's not a view that recognizes Jesus' sovereignty over them. It's a view that recognizes Jesus' usefulness to them. And if you're going to be that useful as king, if that useful as just a teacher, we ought to make you king. Let's go for it. That's why Jesus says, you know, you followed me around the Sea of Galilee because you ate and you were full, because you had the, the loaves and the fish. You want, you want to be my follower, you've got to eat my, blood, or eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood. You've got to be totally committed to me. And most of them walked away. Wait, that's too much. You actually want me to, to submit to you and obey you? That's further than I'm willing to go. That's the kind of popularity that Jesus had from the Jews. They were thrilled with His miracles. They loved benefiting from them. They loved what he could provide. Plus, it's exciting. And he, and he goes toe-to-toe with the religious leaders and never loses. You ever notice, like, like 
as people, we tend to like underdogs, right? But by and large, we love the dynasty, right? Everybody wants to be on the side of the winner. I mean, it's cool when the winner gets upset, but generally speaking, it's like, yeah, I knew they'd win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who, you, who, do, you, who do you root for? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Crimson Tide guy. Well, until yesterday, right? When Texas won. Now who is it? Well, now it's Georgia. Well, until they lose. And then it'll be whoever's next. Right? And it's the same thing with pro teams and everything. Listen, that's just the way people are. And Jesus recognized all of it. And we have come to that point in Jesus' ministry where he's really working to prepare his disciples for his separation from them, his death, burial, and resurrection. He's preparing them and seeking to, to separate himself from the multitudes in order to invest in his disciples so they can carry on the work. And in this time frame, in Mark 7, verses 24 to 37, what I want to do today is show you two miracles that demonstrate that Jesus' focus was still to the Jew first. It was still to the Jew first. When he leaves uh, uh, Galilee, when he leaves Jewish territory and heads out into Gentile territory, his, his focus is still on the gospel to the Jew first. But you're also going to see that even Jesus shows grace and favor and mercy to Gentiles. Christ came to save all who come to Him in repentance and faith. Christ came to show grace and mercy and favor to all who recognize Him for who He truly is, both Jews and Gentiles. And that's what I want you to see as we take a look at two miracles that Jesus does here in Mark 7, verses 24 to 37. And I hope that what you really do see is that though the gospel is to the Jew first, it's also to the Gentile. And the one condition for all of us is the same. Salvation is for those who come to Jesus in humility and repentance and faith, recognizing Him truly for who He is. Now, if you're taking notes, two miracles that show to us that salvation is to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. One, the Canaanite's daughter, the healing of the Canaanite's daughter. Two, the deaf mute, the healing of the deaf mute. So we start with number one, the healing of the Canaanite's daughter, verses 24 to 30. Verses 24 to 30, the healing of the Canaanite's daughter. Notice in verse 24, we have finished. Uh, the Jesus' interactions in the previous accounts, dealing with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, uh, dealing with the multitudes who wanted to make him king by force, etc. And you'll notice in verse 24 that Jesus got up and went away from there, that is from Galilee, to the region of Tyre. Now, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can take a look at it. If I just put the land of Israel up on a map here in front of you for a moment, picture this as the land of Israel. Uh, I might have to turn around so I get east and west right for you. But uh, well, maybe we'll do it over here on the wall here, right? So we'll make this east perfect. 
right? Now, now I'm both geographically uh, correct and both of us get the same perspective. So if the land of Israel is here, you have Judea and Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. You go up north and you have the Sea of Galilee, or yeah, the Sea of Galilee and Galilee to the east of the Jordan then, okay? On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, you have Perea and the Decapolis. That's the ten cities. Decapolis means ten cities, okay? And then up north of Galilee, above Galilee, you have Tyre and Sidon, which is the region that's called Phoenicia. And yes, this will all be on the quiz. Uh, So, you go up north of Galilee into Phoenicia, the region of Tyre, one of the main cities, the southernmost city between uh, between Tyre and Sidon. The southern one is Tyre, the northern one is Sidon, okay, both in Phoenicia. And these are Gentile cities. And those are actually Canaanite, uh, that's Canaanite area. Um, And... So Jesus actually leaves the land of Israel at this point, and he doesn't do it so that he can start preaching the gospel there, doing miracles there, and sharing the gospel with Gentiles. He, verse 24, when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. He was trying to remain incognito. He's trying to go there because it's not part of the land of Israel. And he's trying to escape from ministry and from the the ministry to the multitudes and from the superficial popularity and the contention uh, and constant conflicts with the religious leaders because he's on God's timetable. The Gospel of John makes this very clear that Jesus was always on God's timetable and knew exactly which Passover he was going to lay his life down and how the circumstances are going to play out. He knew how people... People were out to get him, and he purposefully moved away from uh, key regions so as not to let things come to a head before the divinely ordained time. So he enters a house there in the region of Tyre, up in Phoenicia, Gentile territory, and he didn't want anybody to know of it, so he hasn't gone there to minister. He's gone there to basically hide out and hang with his disciples and to continue to invest in them and prepare them for the future. Yet, he could not escape notice. An escape notice literally in the Greek means remain hidden. He couldn't remain hidden. He tried to sneak into town and not have everybody notice it's him, but he just couldn't pull it off. Why? Because he's famous. He's famous. Everybody knows him. Everybody knows about him. Uh, Keep your finger in Mark 7 for a minute, or you can just listen to me as I read. Matthew chapter 4 summarizes even the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry this way. Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus started His ministry this way. He was going throughout all of Galilee, okay, just south of Phoenicia, just south of Tyre and where He's at now. He was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And here, listen to this, news about him spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him, they brought him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, eastern side of Jordan, right? And Jerusalem and Judea, way down south, and from beyond the Jordan, 
Okay, way to the east, way to the south, way to the north. People were coming to him. They were bringing their sick to him. People from all the surrounding areas, not just Jews, they were all coming to Jesus and they were seeing the miracles. Well, if you're a Syri- if you're from Syria, if you're up in Phoenicia, etc., okay, if you're up north and you hear that there's a miracle worker and your mom or your dad or your brother, sister, husband, wife, kid, whatever can get cured from being paralyzed or whatever. What are you going to do? You're going to pick up your son. You're going to carry him down to Jesus. You're going to ask him to do a miracle. He's going to do a miracle. And the two are going to walk home. And what are you going to do? Just keep it to yourselves. Back to our lives, citizen, nice and quiet. No, what are you going to do? You can tell everybody about it. Next, next thing you know, the whole area knows all about it. And everybody's going down to Jesus. That's the way Jesus' beginning of his ministry was. So when he heads up into Gentile territory, seeking to just remain hidden and minister to his disciples he couldn't pull it off too many of the people that were up there already had seen him already had benefited from him and so they recognized him and notice in verse 25 after hearing of him a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet now this is a bit abbreviated here compared to the parallel in matthew 15 we're going to go there uh, for a minute uh, in a minute if you if you want to uh, put your finger there but in mark 4 here or excuse me mark 7 here we're told that uh, jesus gets up here into the region of tyre and as soon as this woman hears that he's there she's got a little daughter who's who's got a demon and is violently uh uh, or ruthlessly, let me, let me go back to Matthew 15. Well, I forget the word. Matthew 15, she sees Jesus. Uh, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So there's great affliction and damage and, and hurt that this demon is doing to her daughter. And by the way, the word for little daughter here in Mark 7 uh, is a word that can either refer to her as a young daughter or as a term of endearment as a beloved daughter. Now, when, when my little girl was 8, 10, 12 years old, which would be the little daughter, she was, my li- she was daddy's little girl. And when I gave her away at her wedding, she was still daddy's little girl. And she moved back in or is in the process. Is she all the way moved back in? So her husband is off to the CHP Academy today, right? They're, they're in Sacramento today. So like boot camp, he's going to be gone for the next six months. So I get my little girl back for six months. I may or may not give her back uh, when he graduates. But you, 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 So in either case, whether it's a term of endearment, which is very possible, or whether it's referring to her youth, which is also possible, okay? In either case, this is a precious little girl to this mom. And this little girl is really, really racked with an affliction of a demon. And when she hears that Jesus is in town, guess what she does? She runs to Jesus. And according to the parallel in Matthew 15, it isn't just that she is able to get to Jesus and fall at his feet and make this appeal. You notice it says uh, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately 
which shows you as soon as she hears Jesus is in town, immediately she comes to Jesus and we're told that he fell at, uh, she fell at his feet. However, if you look in the parallel in Matthew 15, you'll see it says in verse 22, a Canaanite, uh, or, uh, yeah, a Canaanite woman from that region that lived there in, in the area of Tyre, she came out and began to cry out. You know what it means to cry out? It means to yell means to shout. She began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her. She sees him yelling. And he's in the house. She's yelling, My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And notice, she identifies him as Lord, Master, and son of David, the one who is the king of Israel, the one with the rightful claim to the throne, the one who is the Messiah. She's a Gentile, flat out acknowledging him for who he is in his authority in the nation of Israel. But he didn't answer her, not a word. And his disciples came and they were imploring him saying, Jesus, you need to go send her away because she keeps shouting at us. She won't let it go. We got a Karen outside. You got to go deal with it. And so, so that's where we pick up now in Mark 7, verse 26. Notice it says the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her. So Jesus comes out to talk to her because she, she won't take no for an answer. And when he comes out, that's when she runs up, sees him, and falls at his feet. And she kept on asking him, cast out the demon from my daughter. And the idea of a Gentile means literally somebody not of the house of Israel, not not an Israelite, not a Jew, and of the Syrophoenician race, together with what we see in Matthew's uh, uh, gospel, you see this is somebody that's a Canaanite. Do you know who the Canaanites were? Canaanites were the people that when the nation of Israel came in to take possession of the promised land, what were they supposed to do to all the Canaanites? exterminate them the only reason this woman is alive and has a heritage is because the nation of israel was unfaithful to the original command that god gave now it's not like god though didn't show mercy and favor to canaanites even from the very beginning remember rahab the harlot who was a canaanite in jericho you remember ruth who was a moabitess canaanite that and both of those women are in the messianic line isn't that interesting even going back into the old testament god showed mercy and favor not just to the jews but even to gentiles who recognized him as the one true god who came to him in repentance and faith well here is a canaanite woman she's in a desperate situation her daughter has a demon as soon as she finds out jesus is in town she goes and and pleads with him will not let up until he comes out and grants her her request to deliver her daughter. And he was saying to her, let, verse 27, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let the children be satisfied or get their fill first. You know what that, by the way, you know what let them eat first means? It implies there is going to be an after. 
But in addition to that, he says, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread, referring to an act of kindness like this, a miracle like this, and throw it to the dogs. Now, that sounds like a pretty insulting statement. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, the term that we would probably use today is that's a racist type of a statement. He called her a dog. Now, uh, we can soften it a little bit. There, there's a several words for dog. that You can use the term for dog that refers to being a mutt or a mongrel or a scavenger, you know, the wild dogs. Or you can use the diminutive one, which is this one, which refers to the dogs that are like household pets. Some have said it's the smaller dogs, but all I can think of is the little Taco Bell dog and they're yappy and that. And that. So I'll just go with the norm, and that is it's the household pet kind of a dog. But he still called her a dog. You follow me? This is our Lord and Savior. This woman comes and she's a Canaanite. And she has recognized Jesus as Lord and Son of David. And she has appealed to him to deliver her daughter from this demon. And he said, you know something? The children... Let the children be satisfied first. It is not good. It is not proper. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You're not of the house of Israel. You you are not one who should eat first. You are not one who should be blessed by God first. There's a priority here. And I suspect... If, uh, if she had actually gone to Karen school, I th- assume there's a school for this. Uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a gift. But anyways, if she had gone to Karen school, the proper response at this juncture would be, where do you get off talking to me like that? I want to see your manager. Or storming off or something. But I want you to notice, even though he said it's not right, he made a distinction between the house of Israel and, and Gentiles, right? Children and dogs children and pets and you're in the pet category notice though her absolute humility and submission in this whole thing also as we walk through this think about how different her response is to the way most jews responded to jesus she answered and said to him yes lord but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs even the pets get to eat the crumbs. They get to eat the scraps. Verse 29. He said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. I really like what Matthew tells us in Matthew 15. Jesus makes the statement there in Matthew 15. I think it's verse 28. Yeah, verse 28. Then the Lord said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Matthew says her daughter was healed at once. Verse 30 of Mark 7 tells us she went back home and found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. All the oppression, all the affliction, all the sorrow, sickness, and fever, and whatever else, it's all gone. Jesus isn't even in the same room with the little girl. For all we know, it may not even be in the city. It may be in the outskirts of town or in the next town over. With a word, he delivers her daughter on the basis of her humble submission 
and her right identification of Jesus and her, frankly, true view of herself and how undeserving she is of the grace of God. Listen, that's where salvation always begins. Isn't it amazing that the people that Jesus is personally surprised by are Gentiles? Because most Jews expected the Messiah to be their Messiah doing things for them. Most people today view God as one who should be doing things for them. Not those who deserve His wrath and appeal to Him not on the basis of what they deserve, but simply on the basis of His mercy to show them kindness and favor. I can't help in this context, but think about the centurion whose servant was sick, who said, Jesus, uh, you don't even need to come to my house, just say the word. Jesus, I, I can't let you in my house, I don't deserve it. Okay, just say that I'm a man of authority and a man under authority. I know how authority works and I know what your authority is. My servant is sick, please just heal him. And Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. You want to know the one thing that Gentiles learned from the way that God turned Israel into a testimony to the world? They learn, we all learned that we are estranged from God and don't deserve a relationship with Him, right? You know what the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses was intended to teach the nation of Israel? They don't deserve it either. None of us deserve it. None of us do. God's plan that He ordained and revealed in Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic Covenant and through the rest of the Old Testament is that it would be to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When Jesus came here, that's the way He operated. And that's what He instructed the disciples. Even in Acts chapter 1, right before He ascends back to the right hand of the Father, what does He say to the disciples, to the apostles? You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost part of the earth. That's always to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But for all of us, for all of us, it requires what? Repentance and faith and the recognition that none of us deserve it. I think, I think this kind of an attitude is what has been what we see that has been lacking in Israel's response to Jesus pretty much universally throughout the gospel. This idea of you're right, I don't deserve it. But even the pets eat from the scraps to fall from the table. Listen, that's where salvation begins. If you want to know how to be right with God, you know where it begins? Recognizing the only thing you deserve is his wrath and appealing to Him on the basis of His mercy and kindness to open your eyes to the truth and save you. And then you turn from your sins and you follow Him. And you'll find Him, whether you are Jew or Gentile, ready to receive you and make you one of His own children. We move now to the second miracle. And this one's pretty straightforward. There's no parallel to look at. The, uh, the parallel account 
in Matthew 15 simply summarizes the events after the Syrophoenician woman this way, saying, Departing from there, that is in the vicinity of Tyre, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, having gone up onto the mountain, He was sitting there, and large crowds came to Him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at His feet, and He healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. He couldn't hide out in a Gentile territory, and everybody brought him their sick, and he went ahead and showed mercy to them even though they're Gentiles. Now you go to Mark chapter 7. And we have one in particular, starting in verse 31, where he went out from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon, which means he went up north. Um, Remember we said that Phoenicia, the lower city, the southern city is Tyre. You go a little further up north, you have Sidon. So it's a very circuitous route, a very out-of-the-way route. He comes through Sidon, then around down to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. Now remember, the Decapolis is on the east side of the Jordan River. Last time we were there in our study of Mark's Gospel was when Jesus hopped in a boat with the disciples, went across the sea. Remember when He calmed the sea? And then they show up on the shore, and there's that demon-possessed man with a legion of demons, and He casts out the demons. They go in the pigs, and they all drown. Remember how the people there, the people of the Decapolis, of Perea, remember how they responded? They saw the man in his right mind and the pigs all floating there, stinking in the, in the Sea of Galilee. And they said, uh, would you leave, please? This is frightening us. And the man who had been delivered from the demons wanted to go with Jesus. As a Gentile, he wanted to go with Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No, you go home. You go back to the ten cities and you share what God has done for you. Well, now we're months later. And Jesus now comes there personally. He went out from the region of Tyre through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. Comes all the way around down to the east. Now he's in the region of Decapolis. Not in the cities, out in the wilderness area. But he heads over there. And they brought him, verse 32, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hand on him. They brought him one who was deaf. Deaf literally means he could not hear. The idea of spoke with difficulty, your Bible may say a mute. The, the Greek literally means to speak with difficulty. It could refer to stammering. It, it could refer to uh, just the inability to do anything more than make sounds, not able to form syllables, etc. It's very unlikely that it means truly or completely mute in the sense of can't utter a sound uh, because in verse 35... When Jesus heals the man, we're told his ears are opened and the uh, impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. Uh, I think it's important to note the idea of speaking plainly is from the Greek word orthos. We get um, uh, uh, um, orthodontic from this. You know what an orthodontist is? As somebody that straightens your teeth so you can chew properly, so you can bite, you have straight teeth. Okay, orthos means straight. He was now speaking straight, speaking in a clear and an understandable way, which means that he, he probably, well, I think it means that he could speak before, he just couldn't form syllables and be understandable in words. You say, well, what was his actually afflict, actual affliction? I don't know, maybe he had an injury, maybe he had a stroke, maybe it's congenital. 
In any case, this is a deaf man that cannot speak in a way that he can be understood. And he is brought to Jesus by a plurality of individuals. They brought him brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they were imploring him to lay his hand on him. Why imploring him to lay his hand on him? Because they absolutely believed that if he would touch him, he would be cured. Now, we just saw in the miracle Jesus just did up in the neighborhood of Tyre, did he have to touch somebody to heal him? Did he have to actually lay hands on him? He wasn't even in the same place, location with the daughter and cured her just with a word. No effort is required. There's no special incantation. There's no magic word or anything else. Well, in this case, he's going to say a word. He's going to say an Aramaic word that means be opened. He's also going to do a few interesting things. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. They implored him to lay uh, his hand on him. And you'll notice what it says. Jesus took him aside from the crowd. By himself. Uh, Some would have suggested, well, that's so that he can give personal attention. Well, obviously, he's seeking to give personal attention. But when we get a little bit further and you see he tells them to tell nobody, I think the the reason that he separates this guy is because this is a pretty big miracle he's going to do, and it's going to create a big stir, so we're going to just single you out. So he takes him aside from the crowd, away from the crowd, by himself. And he put, or literally thrust, his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, and you know what spitting literally means? It means to spit. He touched his tongue, and your Bible may say, with the saliva. You say, ooh, why would he do that? Is there something magic in Jesus' spit? You know, there's, there's been always, yeah, I mean, it's funny, okay, but is, the, is there something magic in that? You know, Jesus healed people in so many different ways. Yeah, I think it's worth paying attention. Like in John chapter 9, when you had the guy that was born blind. Do you know how Jesus healed that guy's eyes? You know what he did? He spat on the ground. Why would he do that? Because in order to make mud, you need water and dirt. So he spits on the ground, makes a couple of little mud packs out of the spit and the dirt that he turned into mud, rubbed it on the guy's eyes and said, go wash. Is there something special about mud that gives you eyes from? No. Why would he do that? Because the guy couldn't see. And this makes it absolutely clear for the continuing testimony through the rest of John 9 when they say, hey, uh, how'd you get your sight? Well, I was definitely born blind. My parents will tell you that. And here's how I got my sight. Jesus uh, put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool. I washed in the pool and now I can see. Made it very clear Jesus did it. Gave him the ability to testify to what Jesus has done and how he had done it. And that miracle was absolutely associated forever with Jesus having done it. And here, he shoves his fingers into the man's ears, showing the man very clearly, listen, I'm going to fix these. He can't communicate to the man what he's going to do, so he shoves his fingers in his ears. So it's very clear Jesus is doing it. And then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, Looking up to heaven, so it's very clear that this is an act that God is doing through Jesus for this man. And with a deep sigh, 
he says, and you'll notice it even in your Bible, it should say Ephatha or Ephata. That's the Aramaic for, guess what? The magical incantation to give hearing to deaf ears and the ability to speak to a tied up tongue. No, it's just the Aramaic word that means be opened. And that's why Mark translates it for you into Greek. That is be opened. And you know what happened? His ears were opened. He could now hear. And the impediment, or literally the chain of his tongue, was loosed. The chain or the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking straightly, uh, clearly, plainly. Now, instead of gibberish, now instead of uh, uh, unformable, uh, under, undiscernible syllables, now you could actually understand what he was saying. Amazing miracle. Another demonstration of grace. In this case, again, to Gentiles in a Gentile region. Notice verse 36. He gave them orders not to tell anyone. Why? So the word doesn't get out. And again, things become so busy and so hyped that he's not able to move around and continue to minister. There are several times, you'll recall, even in Mark's gospel, where Jesus has forbidden people to speak. Several times, uh, twice in Mark 1 and once in Mark 3, Jesus refused to allow demons to identify him because he was not going to receive a testimony from the forces of darkness as to his identity. In Mark 1 and verse 44, he told the, t- the leper when he cleansed him not to tell anybody, but to go straight and show himself to the priests. Why? So there would be a testimony to the priests and to the temple and to Judea that an act of God had been done by Jesus. In Mark 5 and verse 43, when he raised the little girl from the dead. Remember Jairus' daughter? When he raised her from the dead, he told, told them to tell no one. Why? So that the little girl doesn't become either a target of the religious leaders, like Lazarus later does, or just a popularity thing and her whole life is ruined. Now he tells uh, those who saw him heal this deaf mute, he gave them orders not to tell anyone. Why? So that his popularity doesn't go through the roof. But notice, the more he ordered them, the more strongly he emphasized it, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished. Verse 37. The word astonished means to be completely and totally blown away. Why do I need the word utterly added to it? To just make it clear, they were so completely and totally blown away, they were utterly, utterly blown away. That it was just unfathomable to them. They were absolutely ecstatic. This is, they, did, they weren't just astonished. They didn't just marvel and wonder at it like the people in the land of Israel did. The people in the land of Israel were going, oh yeah, this is just like we read about in the Old Testament. Oh yeah, this is the kind of stuff that God does for us. You go out into a Gentile area and they're like, oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is totally unimaginable. He has done all things well. 
The word well means appropriately, in the right way, precisely in keeping with the highest standards of excellence that you would expect. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus does miracles in the, in the land of Israel, that the Israelites either are impressed and excited and just want to see more, or are rejecting him because they don't like what he's saying and they're finding ways to undermine that he even did it by the power of God. He goes out into a Gentile land where they're not expecting God to act on their behalf. They don't even know the God of Israel. They're seeing these powers and they're just completely blown away. This guy does everything right. This guy even cures the deaf and mutes. Unbelievable. It's almost like with Gentiles, you, you, you know you're estranged from God and you've got all these gods that you worship and you've just become accustomed to none of them being able to help you. Right? And then you meet Jesus who is the God of Israel incarnate and when He acts, you're like, okay, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is the unvarnished reaction of Gentiles to the God of Israel in their midst. But I don't think we should miss, as we wrap up here, the tie back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah 35, I think this is why, I, uh, why Mark writes this down and why Matthew makes a very similar statement. In Isaiah 35, we hear a testimony from God that's talking about when the Messiah shows up. The wilderness, Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah, another way to refer to the desert, will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing in a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given into it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, the wilderness, the desert. Jesus spent a very little time in the, in the Gentile region. And when He did miracles, you know what they saw? Here we are in the middle of nowhere. And they're just amazing acts of God. When Jesus came, He came to save Israel. He came to fulfill all of God's promises that God made to the Jew first. But God did not turn to the Gentiles because the Jews blew it and now He's done with them. Jesus came to save sinners. All of us. What has always been required in order for God to save you, me, or anyone else, is that we come to Him in repentance and faith. That we recognize that whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, we have no rightful claim to Him in and of ourselves. The nation of Israel's claim to Christ 
their claim to God was on the basis of the promise God made to the patriarchs, not the promise he made to them because they were worthy of it. And the promise that God has made to all of us is that Christ is ours if we come to him in repentance and faith. I, I can't help but remember the words that he said to the woman at the well in John 4. He says to her, when she says, so answer me that ultimate question of how to worship God. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we know. But an hour is coming when it will no longer be about where you worship God, whether it's Samaria or Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the right answer for now. But an hour is coming, and from our perspective now is, when those who worship God worship Him in spirit and in truth. From the heart, in accordance with what he says. You want a right relationship with God? Recognize Jesus for who he is. Recognize yourself as a sinner deserving only God's wrath. Come to him on his terms. Turn from your sin. Give him your life. And he will make you a child of God. Jew and Gentile alike. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for us. We are unworthy sinners deserving your wrath. And you, because of your great love with which you have loved us, have demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May we, as your people, rejoice in the gift of forgiveness and eternal salvation you have granted to us. And may we likewise point the world, beginning with those who are members of our household and those that we interact with and meet uh, day by day. May we point all to you so that you might be glorified in the sight of all in your creation. In Jesus' name, amen.